It's time for Stoking the Fire. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! So, what are you trying to say? And here we go. Welcome in to the all-new Stoking the Fire. My name is Seth Stokes. I uh, want to thank everybody at Pronk Studios for affording me this opportunity. Um, you can give me a follow on Twitter, at Seth Stokes, W-O-R-D. You can get this show on all the major podcast platforms. And if you've been a fan of my show since it started a couple of years ago, uh, obviously there's a new element to it. I'm in a new studio. There's a video element. Uh, this is exciting new territory for me and i am extremely excited about what's to come um you know there is video evidence that this show exists if you like what you hear today give the show a follow or subscribe rate the show five stars i hope and um, finally check out the show's facebook page at stoking the fire that's new as well, I wanted to get all that official stuff out of the way um, and now allow myself to introduce myself. As I said, I'm Seth Stokes, and if you're new to this, um, I was born in Georgia, uh, lived in Tennessee for a good part of my life. My background in this realm is uh, I covered the Tennessee Vols for uh, almost, gosh, uh, several years in Knoxville, kind of lost count, uh, was part of a show called The Swain Event um, for pretty much my entire time in Knoxville. And uh, it's what this show started as a couple years ago was a, a way for me to scratch the sports radio itch once I got out of the industry um, in uh, late 2018. And I've been here in South Carolina since 2017. And it's uh, loving it here in the upstate. Uh, but this show is, I like to think of it as a Southern college football show that's not all about college football. Uh, I'll go into, obviously, sports is the bread and butter. But I like to consider myself a multifaceted individual. I'm a bit of a dork, so um, you're going to hear the pop culture, Marvel talk. You're going to hear the, the comic book stuff, the video games, the music, um, anything, movies, anything like that. TV shows, The Mandalorian uh, this past fall was spectacular. Uh, a lot of people hated on the new Star Wars movie. I personally loved it. Absolutely love The Rise of Skywalker. Um, we'll get into that, stuff like that on the show. But sports is the bread and butter, and that's what you're going to hear the bulk of. Now, admittedly, I am a Tennessee fan, so there will sometimes be a little bit of volunteer bias on this. But I do like to call it down the middle. If something sucks, it sucks. If it's really good, it's good, no matter who it is. Um, this is a show that's going to focus on the SEC primarily. Uh, here in the upstate, there's a lot of ACC talk, mostly Clemson stuff. Um, I'm not all about that life. We're going to mention them here and there, but this is going to be an SEC show, which is funny because those that know me know that I don't like the SEC. Yes, my favorite team is an SEC team, but personally, um, I don't subscribe to Conference Pride. I, I think Conference Pride is a little ridiculous, in my opinion. Why would you want your rivals to succeed? Why would you want those who are competing against you day in and day out to do well? 
No, no, no. You want them to suffer. You want that fan base to suffer. At least that's what part of being an SEC fan is. That's the cutthroat nature of the sport, of the business. But there is no denying the SEC dominance. Um, So this will be a show that focuses on SEC football uh, for the most part. And all the teams and all the goings-on, the backstabbing, the cutthroat nature of it, all of that. Don't look for a lot of breaking news on this show because this is not what it's about. It's his opinions. That's why it's called Stoking the Fire because I'm going to throw opinions at you. You're not going to like some of them. You're going to love some of them. Uh, I want to be, you know, the goals be polarizing. So hopefully I accomplish that. Hopefully I can be entertaining at that. Um, But, yeah, you're going to get a lot of different stuff on this show. Life lessons that I learned. I am uh, newly married um, almost a year now. And so this is my new foray into life with uh, three children now. So I've got three beautiful stepkids. And so you're going to hear about that stuff. I, I'm kind of an open book to an extent. Um, but the, another big thing about me is I love craft beer. I'm a huge craft beer fan. Uh, I like to drink beer. Well, one of the things that people ask me, what, what do you like to do in your spare time? Beer. Beer is it. And um, so before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, it's time for one of my favorite segments that I've been doing for a couple of years now, and that is the beer of the show. This week's beer of the show is the Mocha Java Porter by Sugar Creek Brewing Company out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, It's a 5.7% ABV brew. Um, The description of the Mocha Java Porter on the Untapped app, and I'm a big fan of the Untapped app. They're not sponsoring me or anything right now. Hey, Untapped, if anybody from your company is listening, that would be awesome. Um, I just really like what you do. But their description on the Untapped app reads... Coffee and chocolate lovers rejoice. This delightful porter perfectly blends all of the flavors of our rich and easy-drinking Sugar Creek Porter with locally sourced 100% organic fair trade coffee from Pure Intentions Coffee. Our beer engineers hand-selected the coffee beans and blend using 10 of their favorite coffees and a double-blind taste test. Hops take a back seat to delicate floral notes, and our blend of four malts and locally roasted cold-brewed coffee take the spotlight. The end result is an exceptionally smooth and drinkable beer with some mild, dark fruit flavors. Hints of roasted malt nuttiness and a bittersweet dark chocolate coffee finish. Uh, Those are bold claims. So let's see what the uh, Mocha Java Porter has to offer. Hmm. Definitely taste the chocolate and the dark chocolate. They're they're not lying about that bittersweet dark chocolate coffee finish. That's uh it does hit you at the end. So looking through the I don't know anything about the 100% organic fair trade coffee. That's that's all well and good. Um the overall flavor of this coffee is really really good and you do absolutely get that dark chocolate finish that's impressive they nailed that so if you do like dark chocolate uh and you like a little little coffee in your beer this is not bad it's been rated by over 2500 people on the untapped app at a 3.85 out of 5 rating and uh let's see 3.85 seems a little strong 
This is a good beer. I'm not going to call it a great beer, if I'm being honest. Would I drink it again? Yes. Will I drink it again? Yes, because there's three more in the fridge at home, so uh, I'm not going to waste money. Um, I'm going to give it a a 3.7. Some people give it a 3.85. I'm going to go a little below that and go 3.7. This is good stuff. It's not great stuff. But, hey, Sugar Creek's doing a good job with this. This is the first time I've ventured into this brewery's offerings uh, that I can remember. I was looking back at my uh, selections on the Untapped app, and I didn't see anything else from them. Uh, but this is this is pretty good. And maybe this is one of those things that will just get better as I keep drinking it, which we're going to do. And for those of you watching uh, on the video stream, you know, Pop a top and enjoy a brewski with me. We're going to talk a little sports, talk a little life, have a good time. If you're listening at home, hey, there's nothing wrong with listening to some sports talk and having a beer as well if you're a beer drinker. If you're a liquor guy if you're a, or a liquor gal, know a lot of girls that are bourbon drinkers out there. And, hey, that's that's awesome. That's my second go-to is, is a nice, nice, good bourbon. I've got uh, the ice spheres in the freezer, which are fantastic. And the nerd in me really wants to get some of the ones that uh, look like the Death Star. I think that would be spectacular to have, but I just haven't pulled the trigger and spent the money on them. That's coming, though. That's that's coming. Side note, um, since I mentioned the ladies and their uh, affinity for bourbon, I notice on Twitter there's a lot of um, cocktail shaming, I'll call it, out there. Uh, for people who who do drink uh, whiskey and bourbon, they like to make fun of people who like to mix their bourbon with other things and don't drink it straight. Listen, if you like to drink your bourbon straight, that's great. Enjoy it straight. Enjoy it on ice. Enjoy it on the rocks if that's how you like to take it in. If you like to mix it with some, you know, the old school Jack and Coke or a little, a little ginger ale in there, hey, that's fine too. Everybody enjoys it in their own way. Let's not let's not drink shame out there too much, okay? If you like your straight, that doesn't make you a tough guy or anything like that. If that's how you like it, that's how you like it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with mixing it. However you want to enjoy this delicious vessel that we call liquor or bourbon, uh, whiskey, scotch, whatever it is, enjoy it that way. Personally, I do drink it straight most of the time or with a little splash of ginger ale or some ginger beer. If that's not available, then a little, little bit of Coca-Cola. Or the uh, the Southern Champagne, as it's been known to be called. But uh, beer is my go-to, and there's going to be a lot of this on the show, so I hope that's okay. Now, you know, at this time of year, there's not a ton of stuff going on in the world of college football as far as on the field. But you do have your early enrollees or early signees with the new early signing period arriving on campus in January. Uh, you've, so you've got your January workouts, your winter workouts, as they're called. Um, then you have your national signing day, the OG signing day. You also have the combine, spring practice. Those are the, uh, and then pro day involved in spring practice and all the spring games that go on. So there's not a ton of on-the-field stuff to talk about uh, until spring ball starts. And then that's – it's consequential, but it's inconsequential, if you know what I'm saying. But right now the big thing uh, since signing day has passed is the yearly NFL meat market, the NFL combine, uh, where players are invited to go to Indianapolis in the middle of the winter and work out in their underwear for a bunch of coaches and scouts to determine where they're going to be picked. Um, it's a really weird – and fascinating tradition um, that is the combine, and I, I think 
you're going to see changes in the future and and tweaks and and people are going to be looking more pro days and and on film than how one workout goes but the nfl network does have great coverage of it and once again the sec can kind of toot their horn a little bit uh if the math is right they have 93 invitees which is almost 40 more than the next conference which is the big 10 with 57 the pac-12 with 47 acc with 35 big 12 with 29 the aac with 20 mountain west with 12 conference usa with 11 and sunbelt with seven obviously conference success and players invited to the combine there's a correlation and when you look at the number of players invited per team you also see a correlation Uh, i like finding and 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 putting these threads together and obviously this is not a difficult thread to put together but when you go down the list we're going to go alphabetical here with teams in the sec and how many invitees they have You'll see the teams that usually have a really good record are the teams that typically have the most invites to the combine. Alabama with 10. Arkansas sucked this year. Four. Auburn could have been better, but they were not bad. They had nine. Uh, Some could say, considering the amount of NFL talent they had, that they might have underachieved a little bit. But the SEC West, it's a nasty place to play in. And Auburn was kind of up and down this year. Uh, But they had nine. Florida with eight. Georgia with ten. Kentucky with two. They were not very good this year. LSU with 16. Your national championship, LSU Tigers, with the most combine invites of anybody in the conference with 16. Ole Miss with four. Mississippi State with seven. Missouri with six. South Carolina with five. Tennessee with five. A&M with four. And Vanderbilt, everybody put your pinkies up, uh, with three. Obviously, they're one of the worst teams in the SEC, and they rarely have a lot of guys invited to the combine sorry all you middle tennessee people out there that happen to be commodore fans i don't know why why do you hate yourselves that's a team that's been sucking off the teat of the sec for years and we're all kind of sitting around waiting for them to be good for some sort of you know long period of time so they can pay back all the money we've given them as a conference but Anyways, they've got three, and you see the correlation. Teams with good records typically have guys that the NFL wants. Team with bad records don't. Now, obviously, that's not always the case. Not everybody that goes to the combine gets drafted high or gets drafted at all, and not everybody that doesn't get invited gets uh, doesn't get drafted. You can make a lot of money on pro day. You can make a lot of money at the combine. You can lose a lot of money at the combine and some guys will perform well at the combine and shut it down and i don't blame them other guys will perform pretty well at the combine maybe move up on some draft boards but then they work out again on their pro day try to improve that and they end up losing money or some people do okay at the combine try to improve that and then knock it out of the park at their pro day they get in a more comfortable environment a receiver has a quarterback they're used to playing with they're catching the ball they're used to the timing of that quarterback how it comes out of the qb's hands the spin of the ball they can improve their stock a lot of times with pro day because of the comfort level but this is just a fascinating study to me and how the combine process works i mean it's 
it's guys, you know, in, in their workout gear or really their their workout gear undergarments, getting judged by a bunch of other people on how they look, how they think, how they perform, how much weight you can lift, the bench press, which is honestly it's a little ridiculous. Um, I think that's a bit of an antiquated workout uh, as far as football goes and performance on the field yeah it's cool to see those huge bench press numbers go up but there's guys who don't bench that much that can go out there and ball and there's guys who run really great 40s who when you put pads on and a ball in their hands they don't do that well and there's guys who you know don't run great 40s for whatever reason you put a ball in their hands they have what's called football speed look like you're untouchable I mean, it's just, it's, but it's interesting to watch this whole process take place. And if you're a fan of a school, you absolutely want as many guys in the combine as possible. Why? For recruiting. One, it typically means you had a good season the year before because you've got these guys that the NFL thinks they want. And they want a closer, more intimate look at them. Two, if you're a head coach, if you're a position coach, You can go to high school players and present this list. These are the guys that I'm developing for the NFL that the NFL wants right now. Do you want to be on this list in three to four years? If the answer is yes, come to XYZ school. It's a huge recruiting tool. And it's part of the reason that Alabama and Clemson and LSU and these teams just keep churning out these really great seasons because they churn out draft picks. That school becomes the next step in the NFL journey. Huge correlation between on-field success and what the NFL is looking at, which is why the combine is so interesting. Also, it's really funny to hear some of the questions. While inappropriate and while uncomfortable, some of the questions that these organizations ask these players are absolutely ridiculous, off-limits, and hilarious. If you're a fan of uncomfortable situations, go look up some of the questions that players have been asked. I don't know how you're supposed to answer these questions with a straight face at times, or if there's even a right answer to a lot of these questions. But it is hilarious to me that they get asked. Now, is it, is it appropriate? No. Um, is it disrespectful in a lot of ways? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But it's still really, really, really funny. Um, So the Combine starts Thursday the 27th, runs through Sunday the 1st. Obviously, um, I haven't looked at the breakdown of the schedule, but usually they save quarterbacks, wide receivers, the the fun position, you know, skill position groups for uh, one of the, the Later days, um, when more eyeballs can be on the televisions, you get your big uglies, your linemen um, going early, and then your skill position players going later, if I'm not mistaken. And that's always the most exciting. Though it is funny to see some of those big boys go out there and, and run their 40s and see what kind of times they can put up. Because a lot of those dudes are tremendous athletes, surprisingly good athletes light on their feet, running good 40. And any professional runner will tell you the 40 is not necessarily about your your overall speed. That plays a big factor in it, of course, but it's the technique. Your start, your how you hold your hands, how you're running, your posture when you're running, all of that goes into running a fast 40. And it's cool seeing some of those big dudes get that technique down and go out there and kill it for their weight, for their size. 
It's awesome. Good for them. That's why I like Fat Guy Touchdown so much. Because they don't get the light shining on them enough. The big uglies, the guys doing all the hard work so the pretty boys can go out there and make the plays. I like seeing the spotlight put on them. I'm a fan of of, of seeing as a fellow big man, not tall but wide, uh, I enjoy uh, seeing other big guys have success in the spotlight put on them. Um as I was saying, there's not a ton of stuff going on on the field until spring ball starts. And as the show goes, we're going to talk spring ball here in the spring. Can't get around it. I want to say South Carolina's got the earliest spring game in the SEC uh, on April 4th, if my memory serves me. Um, but we'll talk about spring practice for all the teams. There's going to be guests coming on the show to talk about their respective teams, the SEC as a whole, and what to expect out of spring ball. But spring ball in the SEC West is going to be exceptionally entertaining, as is the season as a whole and any media availability. My goodness, I cannot wait for SEC Media Days to hear comments from the likes of Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach, who are both in the SEC now. Everybody knows this if you follow college football. But you've got the former bad boy of college football and Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, which is a perfect landing spot for him, in all honesty. If you've seen Lane lately, he looks like he just spent a day partying in the Grove now. He's got this weird, like, I haven't shaved stubble. His hair's a little longer now. Pull back in the, the tattered baseball cap. It's it's hilarious and so perfect. He, he just fits into that uh, to the, the culture there in Oxford, and I'm really interested to see how he does, how he's grown and matured since his time at Tennessee and then his time at, at uh, USC West. And then, obviously, what he did in, in the state of Florida, and it seemed like he had things kind of going in the right direction at FAU, and now he's at Ole Miss. And the fact that the Pirate, Mike Leach, is back in the SEC and a rival, an in-state rival to Lane Kiffin, two guys who will talk mad trash at any given time, who are a soundbite waiting to happen, are in-state rivals. You couldn't have written the script any better than this. Now, of course, you have Sam Pittman at Arkansas, which will be interesting in the sense that he's a first-year head coach. Arkansas is a really tough place to win at, if we're being honest. It's in the West, so you're competing with the Auburns, the LSUs, the Alabamas. And no one wants to go to Arkansas to play football unless you can knock it out of the park as a recruiter and you're a top-notch head coach who can put people in the NFL. Now, his pedigree with getting offensive linemen ready for the next, next part of their football journey speaks for itself. But how is he going to handle everything that goes into being the CEO of a football program? That's what a head coach is. You're a CEO of a football program. Did he surround himself with the right guys? You know, he makes these kind of goofy selfie videos on the recruiting trail that uh, it's, it's whatever. Um, but he kind of botched his first bit of recruiting as a head coach. Now, he was thrown into a weird situation. The AD at Arkansas had made, called recruits and made a lot of promises before he even hired a new coach. And now this new coach has to come in and decide, does he want to keep the AD's promise to these players or is he going to try to get his own guys in? In a lot of cases, he, he wanted to get his own guys in and did what he could on the recruiting trail. Um, but it was, I don't know, I, he kind of botched some of those situations with lack of communication and things of that nature. So we'll see as he learns on the job. Uh 
as someone who grew up as a Tennessee fan, as Sam Pittman, who had a, a lot of success in his short time at Tennessee as an offensive line coach, uh, I'm interested, we'll say, uh, uh, somewhat intrigued by what could happen there in Fayetteville. But most of my attention from an SEC West standpoint this spring is going to be on Ole Miss and Mississippi State. And, you know, Mike Leach coming is interesting in a couple of reasons. One, Starkville and Mike Leach, I don't think there are two polar opposites of a location and a person uh, than those. Um, I'm not sure how he's going to be able to endear himself culturally because cultural fits are important um, in college football, especially in the SEC. If you don't fit culturally, it's going to be hard for the fan base to really get behind you when times are a little tough. And there's going to be tough times with Mike Leach. He's an offensive genius. His offense will put up hella yards, a lot of points. But defensively, it hasn't been that spectacular. Um, As a head coach, he kind of gets hot for a short time, then fizzles where he's at. There's always some sort of controversy, either while he's there or when he leaves. It's, It's typically not on pleasant terms. Uh, when he leaves a place, he, he can be a gruff individual. Um, and the media, I, I don't personally know a lot of people that cover Mississippi State football. I know he's a glorious soundbite for any media member. But he can also lash out if he doesn't like your style or if he feels you're being uh, too tough on his team. He will call you out. And I, I'm going to be really interested to watch how that plays out with the SEC media. I don't you know, obviously the contingency there in, of media is, is not in, – in Starkville is not what it is at an Alabama or a Tennessee or a Georgia, but it's still SEC football. It's still, it's still a religion in the South, essentially. And he's been out of SEC football for a long time. Um, you know, he didn't, he's not going to get the scrutiny – or he's going to get more scrutiny than he did at – at Tech or at at Texas Tech or at Washington State. And then you have Lane Kiffin, who is a really good developer of quarterbacks like Leach is. He's a a good offensive X's and O's guy like Leach is. But I think that's a a better situation for him than maybe Mississippi State was for Leach. I'm curious to see if he's toned himself down. Now, he'll go at people on Twitter, and it's hysterical. uh, But publicly, he doesn't make some of the inflammatory comments that he did when he was the head coach at Tennessee. Um, but he still recruits well. He's still got a great sales pitch. He has he hasn't forgotten how to coach. So we'll we'll see how things go. I mean, he gets to go up against his uh former boss and Nick Saban at least once every year and you know it's uh it's gonna be interesting. The SEC West, a lot of turnover there not as much in the SEC East outside of, you know, some assistance going different places, uh, which is – you're seeing more of that. I'm going to use Tennessee for an example. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt, when he first got to Tennessee in, in 2018, he hired a staff that was we'll, – we'll just call it what it was. It was a mediocre staff to begin with. Um, and only three of his original staff members – remain from that very first staff two years later. Everybody else in those two years have gone. And some of that has been a a fitment issue. Uh, Some of that has been a 
going for a better opportunity, which is what you want. And some of that has been a pretty just you're just not getting the job done. You need to find uh, find yourself somewhere else to go coach. Of course, it's not positioned that way publicly because you know you want to protect all involved, and the coaching circle is a very tight knit group. While there's a lot of people in it, it's a small fraternity. Um, but a school like Tennessee, you, you experience a lot of staff turnover, and I think that is something that's going to happen more and more as time goes on. You're going to see not necessarily a mass exodus, but every couple of years, it's almost a complete turning over of your staff. You see that a lot in Tuscaloosa with Nick Saban. He's a tough guy to coach for, but his coaches usually go get better jobs. They're not better jobs, but you know they get to advance their career from a, a title standpoint. Uh, when schools are firing coaches after a year, for whatever reason, the more that happens, the more staff turnover at other places is going to occur because the new head coach has to get his staff from somewhere. And he's trying to put to, every coach is trying to put together the best possible staff they can, which is usually some uh, mashup of their friends. Uh, guys they feel that are quality coaches with good experience that can help them out, especially if they're a a first-time coach or an inexperienced head coach, as well as guys who can knock it out of the park on the recruiting trail. That's what it's all about. There has to be some player development in there. You saw that uh, with Butch Jones at Tennessee where they signed these good classes, but they couldn't keep them and they couldn't develop them. Um, But they had a lot of raw talent. They just never went anywhere with them. Uh, there has to be player development, but at the end of the day, you've got to bring in those ballers, those dogs, those guys who's got that edge to them that's going to get it done every Saturday. It's going to get it done Monday through Friday in preparation. That's what it's all about. So you're going to continue to see the staff turnover. And you know, Mel Tucker leaving Colorado to go to Michigan State is the big college football news right now, and deservedly so. The timing was awful. He can't help the timing, but the timing was awful. You just had National Signing Day. You just had people agree to go, go and sign to go play at Colorado, and then you up and leave and take the Michigan State job. Do I blame him? No, not at all. People who are getting mad at him for taking that job need to look at themselves in the mirror a little bit and say, if I am in career A, and a competing company in that career comes to offer me essentially double my salary and a chance for me to help other people out when I bring them and give them more money to help their families out, you would be foolish not to at least consider it. And some would say foolish not to take it. All things being equal, Michigan State is a better job than Colorado. It is. Now, I think people who were throwing the the transfer portal comments he made earlier in the season back in his face uh, with this move, I get it, but it's a little off base. I think it's a little different. Uh, yes, he's going for a better opportunity from, from a coaching standpoint, but m- mostly he's going for more money. That's, that's the bottom line. Whereas players transferring, uh, and if people don't know what I'm talking about, earlier in the season uh, – he was asked about players leaving his program after they had hit, uh, lost a couple of games, and he made a comment, I'm paraphrasing, that there's, there's no transfer portals in real life. While, yeah, that, that's true to an extent, 
a lot of these players are getting unhappy and they're, and they're leaving for one reason or another. Most of the time, it's playing time or they don't vibe with their position coach or something like that. And a lot of times this happens when one coach is fired, a new coach is brought in. There's a lot of turnover in that first season. Um, but his comments with that, it's I think it's apples to oranges with when a coach moves. Now, I do agree that if coaches can move about the country freely, job to job, with no penalty, that there should be a little more lax rules on transfers. And the Big Ten and the ACC are looking into that, looking at one-time transfers without penalty. And it's interesting because you're seeing more and more where individual states and individual conferences, while individual conferences have always kind of had their own recruiting rules that coincide with what the NCAA puts down and scholarship limits and transfers and stuff like that, uh, a lot of conferences are kind of trying to do their own thing now in kind of a polar opposite view of what the NCAA does. And I'm all for it. The NCAA is a corrupt, terrible organization that needs to be bucked a bit. And I'm okay with with a one-time no-punishment transfer. You don't want players hopping different schools every year without some sort of punishment or, or having to sit out or you know having to hold them accountable for not staying. Like at some point, player A, you've got to find a spot and just work. It's not going to be handed to you. But I get players wanting to to find a better opportunity for themselves, just like I, I get coaches going for more money and a better opportunity for themselves and their family. I don't think he did anything wrong. Coaches publicly probably shouldn't say anything negative about the transfer portal when they do hop jobs, even though it is a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison. In the public eye, it's not. For the most part, the public temperament on that is it's the same. If you really think about it, it's not, but that is the perception. And perception is oftentimes reality, right or wrong. So I do think coaches need to hold back on criticizing the transfer portal, especially when coaches just up and leave jobs in the middle of the night like that. But this is becoming more and more of a trend uh, in the world of college football Long gone are the days of coaches back coaching at their alma mater, staying for years and years and years, and then riding off into the sunset on their terms, or sometimes not their terms. See Philip Fulmer, see Bobby Bowden. Um, But those kind of lifers at a job, those days are done. It's guns for hire now, which makes college football uh, an interesting place because outside of, of dynasties like Alabama and now what Clemson's being built up, it's tough for one school to, to get a foothold and build. Honestly, if you look at, and I think that's why Alabama's kind of had that success recently um, is because they got in, they got Saban, kind of towards the end of those coaches staying for long periods of time after they had went through a coaching carousel of about three coaches in in a matter of like two years before they got Saban. And he kind of came in at the tail end of all that and established himself. He was already a known good coach, which helped, obviously. But he established himself, and then Bama's a place going to throw you tons of money to stay. There's no reason for him to leave. And every other 
program out there in the SEC has been churning coaches out, trying to catch up to that. And consistency plays a big part in it. But as a head coach, you've got to show some sort of uh, ability to get to that championship level or close to it within a couple of years or you're gone. But then the school's starting over at square one, especially if they make a poor hire. See Tennessee, again, who's made a couple of them, which is why they're in the space that they're in. But that's, an, that's a whole nother show for a whole nother day. But the gun for hire thing has really changed the landscape of college football, how we ingest it, which teams are good every year, how long they're good for. But it makes it more interesting. It makes it more exciting, in my opinion, because outside of a couple of teams, you see these the P.J. Flex at Minnesota come up and make a little noise here and there. Orgeron getting a redemption shot at LSU, and now he's making the most of it. We'll see if he can continue that. 16 players to the draft, more than that are going to be leaving the school or to the combine. More than that are, are, are you know exiting as they're tr- going to try their hand at the NFL or they've graduated. It'll be fun to watch what Coach O does down in, in, in Baton Rouge uh, in the foreseeable future. Can he keep this ball rolling? Obviously winning a national championship helps with that recruiting, but he's had to replace some coordinators. You got Bo Pelini down there now, which is a very interesting hire. I like it. Pelini, really, really good defensive mind. Um, kind of had some issues there at Nebraska from a head coaching standpoint, but as a coordinator, fantastic. Really excited to see what he does down at LSU. Changing gears a little bit, you know, we're going to obviously spend the bulk of our time on this show talking college football, but I do want to take a moment, venture into the world of NASCAR for a moment, thoughts and prayers to Ryan Newman and his family as he suffered uh, injuries in a, a brutal, I mean, just absolutely sickening wreck at the end of the Daytona 500 on Monday night. Um, he was in the lead. He got bumped. His car flipped. The worst part of that wreck, if you haven't seen it, he was upside down in the air and got sideswiped on his driver's side um, right around the A-pillar to the point that his car bowed. It looked like the worst news that could come out of that was what was going to come. Um, two hours after it on Monday night, NASCAR announced that uh, he is in serious condition, but doctors are saying none of the injuries were life-threatening. Um, at the time of, of this recording, I don't know if anything changed from that, but uh, at this time, just glad he's safe. And I really hope with more and more of these big wrecks happening, NASCAR takes a look at how they run these super speedways. Uh, a buddy of mine on Twitter, Michael Green, mentioned Monday night that pack racing at 200 miles an hour is it's essentially a recipe for disaster. I think he called it a, a you're waiting for a powder keg to explode. And that's exactly what it is. You get that many cars running that fast, bunched up, all vying for a position. And yes, Robin's racing, you're going to bump. There's going to be some pushing and shoving, all that. But at those speeds... Bad things happen. Some spacing is needed in NASCAR. Now, watching them in a straight line for however many laps, all lined up going around a circle, can get a little boring. But if you can find some way to where, one, I I miss the days of whoever the best engine builder was, was winning the most races and being the fastest out there because you were just the best at what you did. 
Now all the cars are equal, all the power's about the same, all the power plants are about the same, everything's the same, and it comes down to driver and crew chief, and in, in which adds some intrigue to it, but you don't get the spacing, and, and spacing is necessary in racing because, one, it can get a little more exciting with how they pass, and two, it can prevent the serious wreck. You're going to have wrecks in motorsports. I've been watching motorsports for years. You see wrecks all the time. It's it's the nature of the game. It's like injuries in football or basketball or any other sport where people get physical. It is the nature of the game. But if you can prevent what happened last night by breaking that pack up a bit, I think you'd be doing yourself a favor. I I agree with anybody whose sentiment is break the huge pack of cars up, give them some space, some way. Smarter men than me are, are, are able to figure that out, but some way to get some separation on these super speedways. Because a whole lot of bad happens when or can happen when they get bunched up like that. It's like I want to say it was uh, might have been General Nealon when talking about the forward pass saying three things can happen when you throw the football, two of them are bad. You can kind of apply that to pack racing at super speedways. A lot of things can happen, most of them bad, very few of them are good. So NASCAR really needs to take some time and address that because no one wants to see what happened Monday night happen again. And kind of on a side note to that, you know, Denny Hamlin celebrated after he won the race. Yes, there was a big wreck. Yes, his crew was aware there was a big wreck. Um, But a lot of people were kind of giving him some hell on social media because of the celebration and the nature of Ryan Newman's accident. Look, if he had known the severity of what had happened, I guarantee you he would not have done a donut. I guarantee you he would not have celebrated in that fashion. And a member of his crew came out later in the evening talking about, I, I stopped talking to Denny because I was trying to find out information on, New- excuse me, on Newman. So Hamlin didn't know the severity. Now, Joe Gibbs came out and, and apologized for the celebration because Joe Gibbs is good people, and that's what needed to happen. But people jumping all over Denny Hamlin, when people screw up in a bad way and, it's, and, it, and it has a bad look to it and they're doing it knowingly, jump all over if you want to. I'm not going to stop you. I don't care. They deserve it. But in this situation, when a guy doesn't know, Let's, let's, let's pull back a little bit. That was a serious situation, and no one knew the severity of it, really, other than the people working on the car to get him out, maybe some of his crew members. But that's, that's it. We didn't know for hours afterward. And I know there were media reports just flinging poo at the wall to see what sticks um, as far as maybe the severity and the nature of it, some clickbait stuff that wasn't necessarily the writers of the article's fault, but more so I would blame the editors for wanting to push something out. Uh, and just being in the industry, I understand that you want a landing page for future information. So 
lot of people were hating on some of the media members, and some of them were putting some stuff out on Twitter that was probably false. But a lot of these major news outlets were throwing articles up there with the headline, the latest on Ryan Newman's injuries or the latest on Ryan Newman and his condition. And then you read the article, and it was just, oh, he had been taken to the hospital after the bad wreck that everybody knew about, and there was no latest. But that acts as a landing page so that when information does come out, there's a place to put it quickly that everybody already has, and you can essentially just refresh it, and boom, the new info's there. So I kind of give most media outlets a bit of a pass. Fox cutting the the uh, coverage, any post-race coverage, stuff like that. Uh, it sucked, but what are they supposed to do, honestly? Um, sit there and say, we don't know, for two hours? Because that's all anybody really cares to hear about at that point. No one cares to hear about Denny Hamlin's win or however anybody else finished. At that point, all thoughts, all eyes, all ears are going to the the Newman camp to find out, is he okay? So I I get Fox handling it the way they did. I mean, if you're expecting some post-race coverage and for people who are clamoring for new information, I understand the frustration of there not being any for a while. But there's no reason to speculate. You don't want to speculate on something like that. And I think just in in the desire to find out, and it comes from a good place for most people, I think, uh, the frustrations of not finding anything out for a while started to show in social media, became kind of an ugly place for uh, a lot of the news media that were covering that. And that's a tough thing to cover. It really is, because you don't know, and you don't want to come across as insensitive, but you do have a job to do, so you have to say something. It's tough. They're not telling you anything. All you can do is speculate. All you can do is is say something. And sometimes people take it the wrong way. But at the end of the day, um, as of this recording, glad he's okay. It looks like he's going to make it and pull, and everything's gonna gonna be okay. Uh, his daughter's worth the race, if I'm not mistaken. And that's just I couldn't imagine being in that situation and seeing a member of my family go through that and and just not know. That's that's ugh, that's terrifying. Uh, so, you know, this was Valentine's week last week. And as I mentioned before, I, I've been married a little less than a year now. And so this was my first Valentine's day with a family, you know, three stepkids, a wife, all that stuff. And, um, we had the kids this past weekend. So Valentine's day was very, very low key for me. Uh, I got home. And we just chilled. Uh, my wife had made a great meal. The kids had went ahead and ate. I get home a little later. So she and I ate together. Um, you know, I, I got my daughter, you know, flowers and, and chocolate and all that stuff. But uh, so they wanted to do something like, hey, they call me Mr. Seth. What do you want to do tonight? And me being a dork. And them never having seen this, and me trying to get them to see this, I decided we should watch Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, the very first movie in that trilogy. And nobody in my family had seen it. I had tried to get them to watch it or watch us. I wanted to start them with The Hobbit so they kind of get the backstory, even though The Hobbit movies aren't that good. Um, And that lasted about 10 minutes before I had to turn it off because of the incessant questions and complaining. 
so we gave it another shot with a better movie, a better step into that world. So Valentine's night, uh, we watched Fellowship of the Ring, and it was exciting and fun, and nobody made it through the whole thing awake the whole time except for me. But that's okay. I got to watch it, but the fact that they you know, wanted to do something for me like that, and that's something I know that they really didn't want to do, but they were willing to do it anyways really meant a lot to me. So uh, when you all watch this, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. That meant a lot. Um, and hopefully um, I'll just answer your questions. And when we get around to watching the next one, uh, you'll not be so confused and you'll be able to stay up for the whole thing. We also started it a little later and I've got the extended edition. So it's a lot longer than it was at the movie theater. And it was long to begin with. Um, but Watching that movie and, and then having watched all the new stuff, all the new superhero movies, all with the new technology uh, used to make these movies, it still holds up pretty well. You know, the movie came out in like 2001. They filmed it in 2000. Like it's 20 years old. And you look at it and some of the CGI stuff, like the big cave troll um, when they're in the Mines of Moria, uh, didn't – you can tell essentially, that it's it's fake, that it, it, it doesn't give you that real feel. Because um, really few movies, outside of maybe Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park, have held up from a special effects standpoint over the years. Jurassic Park being one of them. You watch that and you're like, that still looks like a real-ass dinosaur. Um, but it holds up. It's still very interesting. The writing was really, really good. The acting was really, really good. There's some funny stuff about it. Well, at, the more I watch it and the older I get with different perspectives in my life and watching it, it's there's some comical stuff that I didn't pick up on uh, watching it at a younger age. Um, but yeah, it, it's still entertaining. It's still great. It still holds up. Even if you've never seen it before, you can put it in and this movie still looks really, really, really good. It just does. It's fantastic. Something else that looks really cool, and I was nervous about this and we'll we'll see how it plays out uh in the end but there was a teaser a a kind of a a camera tuning so, so to speak for uh the batman with robin pattinson robert pattinson as i guess how you say his last name as the batman and the costume looks great it it did what it was supposed to do i am officially interested to see how this works dc has screwed up on so many levels with everything they've been doing um outside of and it wasn't really dc but you know the joker spectacular phenomenal movie um i hear birds of prey is really really good though it's not doing great at the the box office because no one wants to see a dc movie right now i hear it's actually a really good movie um but i am officially interested i'll call it uh in the batman to see how this goes um yeah we'll see i don't know we don't really know how the story is going to go which universe of the batman this is set in or or so to speak if you follow the comics there's several different iterations um and and different time frames so i'm curious i'm interested We'll, we'll we'll put it that way another thing that i'm really interested in that I think is hilarious is watching people watch The Bachelor. Now, I don't watch The Bachelor, and on uh, 
you know, kind of this network here at Prong Studios. There is a uh, After the Bachelor show that's doing a fantastic job. But for me, uh, watching people on social media watch The Bachelor and opine on the show as it's happening in real time is spectacular. I honestly don't know how we consumed television before social media and before Twitter. It adds so much to the viewing experience if you're into it in that way, if you want to share your thoughts with the world and converse with other people. Because, uh, you know, before you would just have to have your friends over and and watch these shows, and that's how you had your roundtable discussions about them. Now you pop on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or you know, one of the other myriad of, of social media outlets, and you can talk to anybody in the world about this one subject, and it's much much like Game of Thrones being polarizing and and all these other shows that come out. It's just interesting to me to watch people watch these shows. I know nothing about this show from a viewer standpoint, but I know people's names on the show because of social media and the absolutely hilarious takes. Not knowing anything about what's going on, seeing some of the hilarious opinions and hot takes uh, about this is just spectacular. It's if if you haven't watched people watch The Bachelor, you need to do it because it's 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 high entertainment. I'll put it to you that way. Um, pitchers and catchers have reported in baseball, and we're not going to talk a ton of baseball here because. Really, outside of maybe the Northeast, baseball doesn't move the meter that much from a sports standpoint. People love baseball. People just don't like hearing about baseball that much, except for times like these when there's been a huge scandal and just the abomination of, of, of the sport the Astros have made it with what they've done. And if I'm not mistaken, Nick Marcakis of the Atlanta Braves came out Tuesday morning and said it was BS. What they did was BS, but he he didn't clean it up. Um, and that they should they're, they're, people on that team deserve a beating. That he doesn't agree with the punishment. It wasn't enough, and he's you know disappointed. And you're seeing that opinion from players across Major League Baseball, from officials across Major League Baseball, anybody who's anybody in the sport is looking negatively at this outside of the Astros organization. Mike Trout, who never says anything, he never says a bad word about anybody, never says anything, has come out publicly talking about losing respect for players in the Astros organization and how he doesn't think the punishment was enough and how this whole thing has been mishandled, and it has been. It's been a joke. Baseball baseball has embarrassed itself in the handling of this Astros cheating scandal. I, I don't know where you go from here with this, what you do now, uh, but you got to do something because it's a joke. And it, I don't care if you're an Astros fan. You cannot defend this. And yes, there might be other teams out there who are cheating. There probably are. People cheat in every sport all the time. It's whether you get caught or not. But the level of cheating involved in this, what it led to, how deep this ran. You can't defend it. You absolutely cannot defend it. And if you're trying to, you just come across as foolish. You really do. I, I'm not going to spend too much more time on this because it's been kind of beaten to death, but it's, 
It's ridiculous. And if you're trying to defend it, you're ridiculous. Check yourself because you look stupid. Stop. It's indefensible. It was wrong. Admit it was wrong. Admit your team screwed up, your organization that you're a fan of screwed up, and hope for better days. The worst thing you can do as an Astros fan is continue to defend this and continue to bring it up because then it stays in people's minds. Not like it's going to need any help doing that, but you're making it worse. In all honesty, you're making it worse. This has been fun, guys. This has been a lot of fun. I am super excited for what's to come. Uh, The guy who brought me on board here, uh, Mark Childress, he put it the best way I think possible in that we're going to build this airplane while we're flying it. So there's going to be a lot of changes coming to the show as it progresses. It's going to air bi-weekly. So this is the first episode. Expect another one in two weeks. Same bat time, same bat place. Uh, And we're going to have guests. There's going to be different types of segments. There's going to be in-studio people. Uh, We're going to have people on the phones talking in. And I want interaction from you guys. Now, right now, the thing's not live. It is is pre-recorded. Just kind of behind-the-scenes look on that. But... I'm going to throw stuff out there on the Facebook page at Stoking the Fire, on Twitter at Seth Stokes, W-O-R-D. I want audience engagement and interaction. We're going to have polls and questions. I want to hear your opinion. And if you have an opinion about the show or want me to speak on a, a certain topic or you'd like to see something different about it or just have you know constructive criticism, I'm open to all that. Uh, you can get at me on Twitter uh, or you can uh, message the Facebook page or you can email uh, stokingthefirepod at gmail.com. Um, I really appreciate everybody for tuning in. This is going to be a ton of fun. I'm open to any beer suggestions that maybe I haven't tried on previous episodes or want me to redo or you know, what's your favorite. You tell me. I'll pop a top here on the show and we'll have a good time. We'll talk football. We'll talk life. We'll talk movies. It doesn't matter to me. We'll talk about it all. But this has been Stoking the Fire. I'm Seth Stokes. Cheers to everybody and have a great week.